Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. So we've been working through this letter. By God's grace, we've covered chapter 1, where Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians with a treatise on the Trinitarian operations in salvation. In chapter 2, we saw how the power of the gospel is displayed in the triune God's new, create, new creation work in bringing dead sinners to life in Christ, and how God's divine work of reconciling dead sinners to himself also produces the basis of reconciliation between believers. And that the Jewish Christian would see the good news that God was fulfilling his promises to Israel through Christ and the inclusion of the Gentiles. This theme is continued in Ephesians 3, where Paul, reflecting on his ministry to the Gentiles, desires to show them again the unfathomable riches of Christ that have come to the Gentiles and the glories being fulfilled to a restored Israel. Here now at the end of chapter 3, in the end of the second section of his letter, Paul returns again to the theme of his opening sentence, the triune work of God, where he addresses the Trinitarian operations and salvation in the first chapter, now, before transitioning to more practical subjects, he turns the attention of his readers to the triune work of God in the Christian life, what we often call sanctification. You know, I imagine many of you, like me, are running this race set before you, and we find, our find ourselves at times quite winded and tired and worn down by the trials and tribulations of uh, war with our flesh, war with the world, war with the evil one. The spiritual warfare is one by which, according to God, we are granted incremental victories over time, though never without sin and never apart from the presence of sin or its influence. We, by the grace of God, are being worked on by the great physician. And oftentimes it is painful. Oftentimes the effort required just to lift our heads in prayer is overwhelming. So as we come to Paul's prayer for the Gentiles, specifically as it relates to the Trinitarian work in our sanctification in Christian life, I think we will find much encouragement this morning. So please follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 to verse 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to consider your word, to consider this word breathed out by you. We thank you for the many blessings contained in it. We thank you for the many comforts that we read. We thank you also for the many corrections and admonishments. Oh, Lord, we ask that as we read or as we Go to your word. You would illuminate it to us by your spirit. We would not just be hearers only, but doers also. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look at this prayer this morning, and I'm going to keep an eye on my watch, uh, given uh, that I'm tackling the whole prayer. Uh, We're going to look at it and see uh, it's... Structure. He has an intro, three petitions, and a doxology. And as we look at it from that standpoint, we see in the intro in verses 14 and 15, he introduces in his prayer to the Gentiles the source of all being. The source of all being. As it, and he relates it to family uh, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Ian Hamilton notes that Paul almost always prays to the Father through the Son in and by the Spirit. We are not to think that it is wrong to pray to the Son or the Spirit as Acts 7.59 informs us. But the Holy Trinity is one. Each person equal in glory and equally to be honored, loved, and praised. And yet the normal practice of the New Testament is to address prayer to the Father in and through the Son and in the power of the Spirit. And as we work our way through this prayer, we're going to see that as Paul, though, clearly addresses the Father in verse 14, that he bows his knees before the Father, he does does so not... with exclusion to the Son and the Spirit, but informed by how God has revealed to himself, as how, by how God has revealed himself to us as a triune God. And we see that prayer lays us bare before the watching, active presence of the King who hears, who is near, and who holds a position of power above us. This is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. In the hymn, one of the hymns we sung this morning, it said that God owns all lands and, we, and, and it, our service is required to him for it. If we think about in his intro this idea that there's a derivative that we derive our name from God. This means that we don't start with man and then work to God when doing theology. 
when we're thinking about God and God the Father, we don't first start with earthly fathers. We don't start with an idea on our concept of father first on earth if we're going to say things about who God is as it relates to God the Father. Certainly, as it relates to Father, Son, and Spirit, we then, then don't look at us as we gather in community and say, oh, it's, it's much like this, and we do theology from man to God. We start with God. It's Paul's instruction here that we would start with God because he says that he bows his knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We must start with this God. We must start with this God and see how, how he has revealed himself. And from there, we can then come to conclusions about ourselves. One of the things that we see here, and, and Paul will uh, touch on it again later in his letter, is the idea of fatherhood. There are many fathers in this room. Certainly all of us came from fathers and had fathers, so we can relate to it in some way. But we would be greatly remiss to think that there was a one-to-one -one correlation between us as fathers and God the Father, even as it relates to his fatherhood. There is something uh, without measure as it relates to his fatherhood. There is something greater beyond it because we derive from him. Nothing works the other way where uh, uh, an understanding of God would be derived from us. So let us be corrected by Paul if we, were, if we think that way or have done theology that way this morning and see that we are derived from God and God is not derived from us. We must start with whom all the nations of the earth derive from. It is under this introduction that he begins to ask of this God things. He petitions God in three petitions. The first petition we see in verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. In verse 16, he asks that God would grant us, these Gentiles, but even us, would grant us, according to the riches of his glory, strength from the power of the spirit. This idea of the riches of the glories of God will re require us to do a little running and a little exercise this morning as it relates to Old Testament passages and New Testament passages. And we'll be spending some time there. So bear with me as we work our way to understand this idea of the basis upon which we are to be strengthened in the spirit and in the inner man is the riches of his glory, of God's glory, of the Father's glory. This is also something related to the conclusion that Paul comes to at the end of his prayer, that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. We will not exhaust the riches of the glory of God this morning. 
Amen. Amen. But I do believe we'll be able to apprehend something about God's glory. And by that, we would apprehend something and see as you maybe stand on a precipice or stand at the Grand Canyon and you look. And even then you can see the end of it. But in some ways you may look at it and go, my goodness, this surpasses your ability to take it all in. So is the love of Christ. Or it is something that we may be able to stretch our imaginations to think of a benevolent king who shares his wealth with his people. Stories and folklore is told about a benevolent king who, who gives of his wealth to his people. More commonly, though, the Lord, Robin of the Hood who steals from the rich and gives to the poor, but he doesn't keep it for himself. He, he distributes it to the people. We're able to think of that in our imaginations. We, we may, there may even be some truth to that in history, but it is God's glory whom he shares with us that is eternal. To understand something about God's glory, we're going to need to turn to the Old Testament. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. The temple has been built. Solomon, uh, uh, following through in the desire of his father to build a house for the Lord, does so and he completes it here in chapter 5. The Ark is being brought into the temple. The Ark of the Covenant containing the manna from the desert and the tablets written by the finger of God that came from Mount Sinai. The Ten Words or the Ten Commandments contained in the Ark. The Ark having the mercy seat upon it and the two cherubims whereby God had dwelt in His glory of his name with the people as they wandered the desert, as they conquered uh, the promised land, as they conquered Canaan, much as what we, as what uh, Paul read in over, or Paul preached in overview that we read in Acts. Look in verse 11. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves with regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jedduthun, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. In unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to the glory of the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music. And when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. 
I mean, you can imagine that scene a little bit. There's 120 instruments and singers, and they're lifting up their voice in unison. And there would have been some great and beautiful noise coming from that. And there's a sense in which maybe you could think that your eyes would be fixed upon them as we take in a concert or an orchestra setting and be, and be uh, captivated by that. And here the glory of the Lord descends as a cloud. And what does Solomon do? What, where is Solomon's attention and what conclusions does Solomon draw from this? Look in verse 13 of chapter 6. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide and three cubits high and had set it in the midst of the court and he stood on it and knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. What we see is Solomon not acting very kingly, not acting very stately, not sitting upon a throne and, and taking it in as in the box seats of the presidential suite of an orchestra or a concert, but on a platform on his knees before the people with his arms in the air praising and worshiping the Lord. Now look at verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with mankind on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Solomon's conclusion after witnessing the glory of the Lord fill the temple is that this is no place to contain our God. This, there's something uh, incongruent between God and his being and his glory and him dwelling with mankind on earth as it relates to what we, what we see in Isaiah 6 and other places that those that have been confronted with the glory of the Lord are then immediately confronted with their inadequacy, their sin, their corruption before God. And so first Solomon makes this conclusion, but will God indeed dwell with mankind on earth? How is it even possible? And then he says, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. This glory of the Lord that descended like a cloud would remain in the holy of holies over that mercy seat whereby year by year the priests would come in and offer that yearly atoning sacrifice for the people of God. God's people, his, the Israelites. And they would come to know something of the glory of God. They would know that they were separated from it. They would know that they could not go and behold it. They would know that, that even the priest himself would have to offer sacrifices for himself before he could enter it and, and complete his work. And generations would go by learning that lesson. 
And as they would rebel against God and he would eventually judge them and sending them into exile, we read in Ezekiel's prophecy that this glory eventually leaves the temple. This glory that descended on that day in Second Chronicles chapter 6 or chapter 5 leaves the temple. No longer filling that room. No longer hollowing that place. And so if you turn to John's prologue, we learn something of what John is saying as he opens his gospel. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Further, further down in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. This glory that descended on that day that filled the temple is said to assume flesh, to come to man, to dwell among men. What was Solomon's concern? Can God dwell with mankind on earth? John says, yes, through mediator, through the mediator, through the one, the unbegotten God are the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He has revealed him. And yet, as we read in Isaiah's gospel, that his mission was not glory, but humility. Isaiah 53, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty, that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. What is this reality? Is we have the glory of God coming in Christ, and yet it comes with no stately form or majesty. We do not confess as some of the old heresies did and even old heresies made new of a doctrine called the kenosis doctrine where Christ emptied himself of his deity to become man, that he would devoid himself of, what, of, of the glory that is a part of the being of God. No, it was he was fully God and fully man. Paul describes in this emptying doctrine comes from this section, so we'll take some time to understand it properly. But Paul describes this idea of Christ coming in no stately form or majesty as emptying himself. Philippians 2, 7. And he made himself nothing, emptying himself. Let me... 
return to that so we can get the context of that. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. One commentator says this, he made himself nothing, he literally emptied himself. Christ is not said to have removed from himself his identity as God. The phrase means that he humbled himself, relinquishing his heavenly status, not his divine being. The nature of his self-emptying is defined in three phrases in this verse, taking, being born, and being found. So the emptying is related to the assumption of humanity. The emptying of the constant praise of God in the heavens by his heavenly beings. The glory of God now veiled in flesh. So the wonder beyond wonders is that this king of glory who dwelt in realms of constant praise not only shares his glory but in order to share this glory it was required that it would be veiled for a time and he would live with the people as them taking upon himself not only their nature not only their obligations but also their penalties and the Amazing thing there as we read farther in Ephesians 2 is that this produces even more riches of glories. Riches of glories as now relates to Christ's humanity. For there is no increase that can be given to the glory of God as it, as it is to his being. And here we come back to Ephesians 3 and we see Paul saying that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. These riches of glory are doled out in strength from the spirit in our inner man. When we talk about going to Christ in our struggles, when we talk about falling into sin and, and realizing that uh, you are, uh, that you have not confessed the sin or that you're struggling with something that besets you. And oftentimes you hear from me and Pastor Dana, go to Christ, go to him, go to Christ and understand that according to the riches of his glory, that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. This idea of being strengthened in the spirit, we have the Father granting according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit bringing in now the Son in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
There it is, the Trinitarian operations in our sanctification, the granting of the Father, the strengthening of the Spirit, the interceding and mediation of Christ, who we are united to in our hearts through faith. Here's that second petition in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Many of you, like me, were taught in order to be saved, you must accept Jesus into your heart or invite Jesus into your heart. Sinclair Ferguson notes that this is the only place in Scripture that references Christ dwelling in our hearts. And it is not referent to salvation or that first work of justification. This is not Christ dwelling in, in our hearts uh, for the first time that you, that you have an empty heart and you invite Christ into your heart and now he dwells in your heart and you are saved. What does Paul say? He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith in reference to the strengthening of the Spirit. The dwelling is as a result of the strengthening of the Spirit from verse 16. The dwelling of Christ in our hearts is Christ working in us. Is Christ's righteousness working in us, on us? Through us. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, we, we come back to faith being integral to our salvation. Not just the beginning of our salvation and integral to getting it started, but integral to seeing it grow, to seeing it strengthen, to seeing it become more rooted and grounded. All words that reference effort, all words that reference work and determination. And certainly supplied by us, we do work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But it is the power of God at work in us. Because I don't know if I've ever met a truly sanctified person who, who looks back at their life and says, Look at what I have done. Look at all that I've I've done. Look at the amount that I've forsaken for Christ. Look at how good I am. No, a true saint in the Lord says, look at Christ. Look at what the Lord has done. This idea of God dwelling in our hearts is something that Christ spoke to his disciples about. Again, John's gospel is helpful to us. You can turn with me, if you'd like, to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, just a couple verses, verses 3 and 4. 
you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This dwelling is the abiding of Christ that he speaks about. But what does Christ say about this dwelling? Does Christ dwell or abide with the disciples at their invitation? Was he waiting for the disciples to pray a prayer and say, Oh, Jesus, please come and abide with us? No. He says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Because of the gospel that I have preached to you and what in which you have believed, me being the substance in whom you have believed. And so now he says, abide in me and I in you. Like a vine and branches. Thomas Goodwin speaks of this idea according to union with Christ. Under two headings, a relational, or two aspects, a relational union and a communicative union. The former references our legal union with Christ as a husband and wife who are united completely during uh, the wedding ceremony, as ever they will be. We recognize the solemnity of, of a wedding ceremony where their vows are exchanged and before God and man they profess their love, that they will love each other in sickness and in health, in rich or in poor. I'm sure there's other ones. It's been a long time. But we never, after the wedding, go think that they're not fully married. Right? That they didn't really come into relation with one another. They're as united as they ever will be. Though there is subsequent dwelling together, their oneness was not increased. Thomas Goodwin, in this union, is fully and completely done when first we are turned to God and when Christ first takes us as ever it shall be. Your relation does not increase. It has not degrees. Your union with Christ, that is one with your and you with him, in respect of the relation to him, is complete. When you are in heaven, you are not more in Christ than when first turned. This is the relational union. This aspect, as we talk about dwelling, we must first look at it relationally. The latter deals with our communicative union. This is the communicating of the benefits which are given according to the relational union. For us, this communicating of Christ, for this, this communicating is Christ's holiness to us and in us. Goodwin again says, so then the communication of holiness and the communication of glory are but still consummating that union which the relation first brought in. This two-part union shows the meaning of Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. There was 
a work of Christ done, that there was a word that was preached. There was a cleansing of our sin. There was an imparting or an imputing of righteousness. Upon that, upon the rights that were given to us through our union with Christ, we now have a dwelling and a, a, a continued dwelling of Christ in our hearts. Not the justifying faith. This is through faith, but it's not the justifying faith. Okay, it's 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 not the 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 faith that justifies or, or the faith by which we say justification by faith alone. It's a faith that continues to return to Christ. Remember, we're not talking about at when I first believed, though it began there. And though there is the twin benefits of Christ, or justification and sanctification, we what we see here, what Paul is praying in this second petition, is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This continuing, continually returning to Christ, the faith that continually returns to Christ for those benefits he earned and does so freely bestow to us. In this second petition, we see Paul asking of the Father that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. It is not enough that we believe that Christ was crucified, that, that he lived and was crucified and buried and rose again on the third day. It's not enough that we believe that Christ lived, was crucified and buried and rose again on the third day but that he did this for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, if you're wondering where I'm informed at that statement, we often imagine that it is an, an ascent of knowledge. But what does Paul says? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died according to the scriptures? No, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that carries on and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Again, he connects that as he speaks to resurrection. That if Christ is not raised, then how could we have hope of being raised? Because he was raised for us. Your belief in Christ must go beyond an intellectual exercise or a historical inquiry. It must be rooted and grounded in love. The love of Christ. The love of Christ that he lived, that he was crucified, and then he was buried, and then he rose again for you. I agree with Daniel Doriani. He says this means that the ultimate goal, the talos, the purpose or aim of preaching or parenting, or personal devotions, suddenly becomes quite plain. 
I must ignite, cultivate, spark, renew, demonstrate, broadcast, signify, magnify, and preach love for God to our, uh, the, preach love for the God of our redemption. This final petition they be rooted and grounded in love, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This means... That the purpose and aim of our relationships, of our preaching, of our parenting, of our personal devotions is that we would ignite and cultivate and spark and renew and demonstrate and broadcast, signify and magnify and preach love for the God of our redemption. Obviously, we would also do that about the love this God bestows upon us. What never must be absent from our spiritual instruction is that which stirs in the heart a prevailing love for the Savior. While we may have much knowledge to communicate regarding Christian obedience, thought, and duty, our greatest obligation is consistently and compassionately to fire a more profound love for God in those dear to Him. Without love, there will be no power to do what God requires. Only an overwhelming affection for him will produce an overcoming power to defeat, to, to defeat sin. Love is power. We began by talking about this idea of the race that is set before us and running it and being dragged down and weighted down by uh, the war of our sin or the war of flesh, the war with this world, the war with the evil one. Wondering when we will one day put off this tent, this body of death. And yet remaining still, wondering how we will, we will make it through. Maybe it's hourly, maybe it's daily, monthly. Maybe it's chance interactions. Maybe it's planned interactions with people. How will we get through? Uh, we may get through because strengthened Granted by the Father, strengthened in the Spirit, Christ dwells in us through faith. And this, the outcome being us being rooted and grounded in love, that we would attempt to comprehend with all the saints... As we do this together, there's the com community of it, right? As we talk about encouraging one another and doing this as the talos of all things... With all the saints, those here present, and then one day when we get to do this together in glory with those that have gained their victory. To know the love of Christ, and then Paul says, which surpasses knowledge. Just in case you might think you'd come all the way around the love of Christ with your hands and, and touch your fingers together in your mind. Paul says it surpasses knowledge. Because the love of Christ is, is centered in his being. God is love. There is no end. 
that we may come to understand his love for us in the gospel. May this, and then Paul's wants this love to produce an overwhelming affection for God, to produce an overwhelming power to defeat sin. And I won't add, I'll save the doxology for the end, so as we see him coming to a doxological conclusion, I think we can understand why he does it. Because he's overcome with the thought of this love. Paul is left. He's left with where we started this morning. The triune work of God in the Christian life is a consummating work of power, of sustaining power, of benevolent granting power, of dwelling, indwelling power. The understanding of the assurance of God's faithful working. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning that you hear our prayers. We praise the name of Christ, the only mediator between God and man who intercedes for us, that our prayers are heard. We give praise that the Spirit of God intercedes in our prayers, translating them to good prayers to you be the glory now and forevermore Amen